If you have your Bibles, you can turn in them to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, the scripture is in your bulletin. It's on page 6. There's a place to take notes on page 7. But before we look at the scriptures, I just want to set, uh, I want to set the context why we're looking at this passage here. Um, Today is the day we're going to be launching, this is the week we're going to be launching our new life groups. And uh, we've been in a series that's sort of setting us up for that, and the series has been called uh, Together. Together, I just want to review where we've been. We've actually been looking at the whole Bible. I don't know if you know that, but uh, we've been looking at all of the different kinds of scripture in the Bible as we see what God says about our need for community. Okay, and so we started out with Genesis 2. We looked at, at the Torah the very beginning, and we saw that it's not good for us to be alone. It's not good to be alone. We need companionship. We need spiritual friendships, community. Uh, And then we saw in 1 Samuel 20, which are the historical books, um, we talked about why we are alone, the things that cause us to be alone, that time. We don't have time. We're afraid either of what may come out of us or what might come out of somebody else, and so we avoid community, or we just haven't done this before. And we're, we're just nervous, and so the inertia can be a reason why we stay alone. Uh, and then we looked at Romans 15, so we looked at the epistles, and we saw that God made you to disciple other people. I don't know if you remember verse 14, but Paul said, um, I am convinced that you are full of goodness, and you're able to admonish one another. And so we see that we're made for this process. We're made to disciple others. And then in the last two weeks, we looked at the Gospels. Luke 22, Michael showed us that our failures, either in the past or in the present, shouldn't stop us from discipling other people. And then last week in John 21, we saw how Jesus restores us so that we would disciple other people. And so we're actually going to finish this series today by looking at the last genre in Scripture, and that's the wisdom literature. Okay, the wisdom literature. This is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And these five books, they are part of the symphony of Scripture. They're they're sort of like a set of instruments, like the string section, that that speak out. And they they have a unique message that comes from God. Um, Wisdom is the skill of effective living. Okay, it's living uh, that's effective. And Ecclesiastes has a really strong voice. Ecclesiastes has a really strong voice in the area of how to live wisely. And it uses this one particular word 34 times. Okay, 34 times it uses this one particular word uh, in 12 chapters. So, you know, it's an average of about three times a chapter. So this is the theme of the book. And uh, the word that's translated, that word that's used that many times in our version of the Bible, it's the word vanity. It's the word vanity. And Ecclesiastes starts out by saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And uh, and it's interesting because this word, vanity, it has different meanings. Okay, it's translated differently in the different English translations. It's got different meanings also even within the book. So you can't come up with a single definition that applies every time the, the word is used in, even in the same book. Okay, so there's a range of meaning. And, and as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you see that. For us today, though, in the passage that we're going to look at in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the definition, the meaning of this, uh, of this word in our context 
is futility. Futility. Okay, so in the passage we're going to look at, the word vanity actually means futility. And so just to give you a definition of futility, futility is the quality of having no useful result. Okay? It's not that there aren't results, but the results aren't useful. So we're talking about uselessness. Uselessness. And so what's interesting is that the, the word vanity and the word useless is sort of a metaphorical definition. Like literally the word in Hebrew is hevel. Everybody say hevel. Hevel, hevel right? So it's the word hevel. Okay? And what that word literally means is vapor. It's vapor. Okay? It's vapor. And so when the Ecclesiastes talks about vanity, the vanity of life, what it's saying is that life is a vapor. Okay? This is life according to the book of Ecclesiastes. And actually, we see this in the New Testament. There's a verse that you might be familiar with. James 4, verse 14 says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And so Ecclesiastes was written. The reason we have the book of Ecclesiastes is because God knows that we struggle with some questions. There are questions that gnaw at us, that nag us as we live our lives. Questions like, why is it that I feel like nothing that I do matters? Right? You ever feel that way? You ever feel like this is your life? A few seconds, you're around, and then it's gone. I mean, what is the meaning of life if everything that I do just seems futile? Seems useless. Ecclesiastes 1.14 says, All is vanity, and it's striving after wind. You ever try to chase the wind? I mean, you could run through this little cloud and maybe get a little bit damp, but in a few seconds, you might as well not have been there. Like life, the meaning of life, right? Like it's like we're, we're grabbing after wind. <laughs> You have to change the image when you got a bright light and, and you see the dust particles. You ever try to grab those? My kids have done that. You know, they go after, they try to grab, and they're like, it just, it moves, right? You can't get a hold of it. Ecclesiastes says, this is vanity, it's futility. Now, God knows this is, these are the questions that we have. God knows this is how we feel, right? And so God gives us a book that in the midst of a life that seems like it seems like our life is filled with futility. It seems like our life is filled with uselessness. Well, God cuts a straight path through that. And, and across our life, God gives us a path that brings meaning. And that meaning comes from wisdom. That meaning, the, the, the salvation from futility. If you want to be rescued from futility, what you need is wisdom. Wisdom is the path through the vapor into lasting meaning. And so that's what vanity is. So let's read the text and let's see where it takes us real briefly this morning. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 7 through 12. It says, again, I saw vanity 
under the sun. I saw a vapor. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So what we see in this passage here, in this passage in Ecclesiastes, we see that being alone, living outside of community, a life without meaningful relationships is vapor. Okay? Life alone is vapor. I mean, this poor guy in verse 8, right? This person is alone. He's got no son, no brother, no heir, and yet he's a workaholic. Sold out for work and doesn't ever stop. He never stops working because his eyes are never satisfied with riches. It's interesting. He's driven by money. He's surrendered to this craving for more. And he's got this endless process of feeding that craving, but it never, ever gets satisfied. Now, I think it's interesting because as I was studying this, I thought, you know what? It's possible that this man is an only child who stayed single. It's possible. But isn't it also possible that this man's life actually produced this? You know, so not so much that he was alone and lived that way, but that his endless pursuit of work, his endless pursuit of riches, actually separated himself from his family, from his children, from any sense of meaningful community. Right? This kind of pursuit. And, and you know, we know people, you know, we hear stories. You know, the lawyer who, uh, a friend of mine, um, told me about this guy who billed 5,000 hours in a year. If you do the math, like, that's like impossible. And yet he billed, you know, doing double billing, stuff like that. I mean, this guy was unbelievably successful in his career, right? And proud to tell anybody about it. And, and this friend of mine at one point said, why are you working so hard? I mean, literally, this guy's working 90, 100-hour weeks, right? Double billing to get up to that 5,000-hour billable hours. And I said, why are you doing this? And he said, oh, so I can provide for my wife and kids. This friend of mine said, you know what? You don't have a wife and kids anymore. They don't know you. I mean, if you're doing this for them, what you need to give them is yourself, right? Not money, not like this. And this guy was just trapped and ensnared 
His eyes weren't satisfied with riches. And this is what happens. This is what happens. The incessant drive for work and wealth can actually kill community. It can kill community. This, the author says, is vapor. It's vanity. And an unhappy business. There's no joy in this. So we got to ask, is this your life? It's not just money that does this. It's not just work that does this. Um, it can be the need for a relationship. It could be the need for status. It could be the need for approval that drives us to not ever stop. And the way to know, the way to know, how do you know if this is your life? Well, you need to ask the question that this guy never asks. In verse 8, the problem here is that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Who am I doing this for? He never stops and asks. So the question for us is, who are you working for? Who are you driving yourself for? Stephen Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he said, it's incredibly easy to get caught up in the activity trap, in the business of life, to work harder and harder at climbing the ladder of success, only to discover that it's leaning against the wrong wall. And the challenge is, the problem is, that for so many people, they never ever get to the top of the ladder, so they never even find out that they're on the wrong wall. Man. There's nothing wrong with work. In fact, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, there's times where the author says, look, here's what we got. All we have is to enjoy our work and to work heartily before God. So there's nothing wrong with work, but the question that you need to ask is, for whom are you working? You know, the implication in the rest of the passage is that if you work for, your, for others and not just for yourself, life won't be vapor. Right? If you work for God, if you work for family or for community, verse 9 actually says, you get a good reward for your work. Good reward. God has made us for work, actually. We are called to work for him. That honors him when we work hard. It keeps our work from being futile. We honor God with our work. We image God and what God does. So God works. He is at work in the world, and our work images God. Right? Work is designed also so that we can earn money, so that we can celebrate life. We can celebrate God's goodness, so that we can provide for our needs, to support our family, to support the church, and even to care for others. But working for yourself is vapor. It's a mist that doesn't last. It makes everything feel useless and futile. And it's interesting because this idea of being alone, like being alone is a curse. Isolation is a form of judgment. It's a form of torture. Right, to be alone like this. There are people who feel, even just the last couple weeks, there are people who feel so alone that they would really rather die than live alone. But God wants us 
to be saved from this. God wants us together. God wants to rescue us from futility and from being alone. You know, this is why God sent Jesus. God came to us in the isolation of our own hearts, right? Into the realm of our sins, the things that we hide from everybody. Jesus came with such extravagant grace, with such unending love, that he came to meet us in the place where we are most hidden, into the secrets that we don't want anybody to know. Jesus came for that. He came to let us know that no matter where you are right now, God is on your side. God is coming for you so that you can know him and at least invite him in to your isolation. And in order for Jesus to meet us in that place, Jesus actually endured the ultimate isolation. Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross. God turned his back on Jesus, the perfect relationship that the Father and the Son had from all eternity, which is a mystery that we don't understand. That, 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 that fellowship, that relationship was severed when Jesus was on the cross. And Jesus was isolated not just from God, but from brothers and sisters, from the community. And he did that for us. He did that for us so that he could save us, so that we would know God again. And also, not just that we can know God, but when we are saved, Jesus joins us to his family. He gives us his own brothers and sisters. So when we're saved, we're joined to a community of people. This is why God wants us together. It's because God wants to provide a community of people where you are known, understood, loved, forgiven, no matter what. A group of people that love you so much that they don't want you to stay where you are, but will love you if you do. You know, that's the kind of love that's transforming. And this is the kind of love that we want to provide as a church with our life groups. This is why we're doing our life groups. Our life groups are going to enable us to be this kind of church to have these kinds of relationships. And these life groups, they're going to do what verses 9 through 12 talk about. You know, 9 through 12, these are really practical, real world, real life experiences, but I think we can translate them spiritually to apply them in terms of what we're going to do in our groups. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Right? How many of you feel like and maybe you might not with Facebook and Twitter, but there are so many people out there who feel like their lives haven't really happened until they post it on Facebook. Right? Until I put it up on Facebook and I see someone likes it. Like, then my experience is real. Right? I mean, that's part of the cry of our hearts. Like, this is 800 million people. Not everybody uses it this way, but this is millions and millions of people who feel this need for community. They want to include other people. That when you do something good, but there's nobody around, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. But when someone is around, man, our, our, our joys are multiplied. Verse 10, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who's alone when he falls, there's no one to lift him up. 
And how many times do you fall? And when you fall, spiritually speaking, you need someone there with you. You need someone there to remind you of the promises of God. You need someone to remind you and to lift you back up. Verse 11, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Right, this is an image of a journey. Right, if you're traveling and all you have is a cloak, right, that's what they had back then. That's your blanket. If you lay down by yourself, boy, it's going to be hard. And even our homeless friends, our homeless brothers and sisters, they, cut, they huddle together because they share warmth. The same thing is true about your fire for God. Your spiritual vigor will go cold when you are alone. And then just practically, if you get jumped by somebody and you're by yourself, somebody comes to mug you, you might have a shot, but if there's two of you, chances are you won't get mugged in the first place. Right? I mean, that's the image there. You might prevail against someone if you're alone, but two, two will withstand them. And then a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That one, that, that last phrase kind of drove me crazy this week because I'm a math major and, uh, and did mathematical modeling and I'm thinking, okay, wait a second. Right? If I've got a, a cord and it can hold 50 pounds and then I put two cords, you know, it'll hold 100 pounds, three cords, 150 pounds, but that's just like, I don't know. I mean, I, so I guess it holds more weight, right? So you can endure more. I guess that's kind of the message. What I was struggling with is it doesn't seem like there's any real added advantage of winding the cords together, right? I guess so maybe it's just that, oh, it's three, it's three times harder to break that, which actually is significant. I didn't think about that until just now, which <laughs> that seems like the basic point of the text, right? <laughs> ah, sometimes, you know, it's in the act of preaching that you teach yourself. <laughs> Um, but, so I wasn't satisfied with that. I thought there's got to be something more to this, and there actually is. So let me share with you what I learned in my <laughs> countless hours. See, this is the time where if somebody was with me studying, I wouldn't have gone any farther. Like, so I needed somebody together with me. Listen to this. Listen to this. Um, what happens when you have a threefold cord that's braided together Here's what happens is sometimes when you've got a th uh, three cords that are separate, if they're different lengths, the stretch is on the shortest cord, right? And that one will break more quickly than the other two. So it might get caught, but still, like, what actually can happen is the first one breaks, and then it hits the second one, that breaks, and the third one breaks too. But when you braid them together, when you braid them together, what happens is that when weight is added, force and friction actually cause the cords to bind together. So when weight is added, force and friction bind the cords together, and so it's as though they are the same length. It's as though they all are holding on together. And so that's the difference between you showing up on Sunday and sitting next to someone and just sort of never, ever getting to know them. We've got separate cords, and yeah, maybe some weight can be held there, but when you overlap, when you begin to let people in, when you begin to care about other people, and that's where the cords bind together, and force and friction actually make them stronger. They make them better able to hold more weight. And so... That does a bunch of things. One, it's just a great image. It's an encouragement for us to be together, 
to join a life group, to be a part of what we're doing. Um, but it also recasts. It's interesting then because I think sometimes God allows the friction. God allows the weight in our lives. Sometimes we have conflict. We have misunderstanding. Not because necessarily God wants us to be judged, but God wants to bind us closer together. When you have disagreements, when you have um, frustration, like that is God wanting you to actually press in more deeply to relationships so that we can have a conversation about the conflict, not just be dismissive or frustrated because we don't get along. And so this is what God's got for us. And in our life groups, these groups, they're going to meet your needs in these ways, but God's also going to use you in these groups to meet the needs of others, to meet the needs of others. We're going to teach you how to disciple others, how to have spiritual influence. And God is going to keep us from being apart. God's going to join us together. And as a church, we're going to grow. We're going to grow. I hope you're ready. We'll talk more about this in our family meeting. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now with confessions on our heart. Lord, our lives have been vapor in so many ways. God, we have separated ourselves from community. We've hidden things from even the people that we're in community with. And uh, we just confess now, Lord, you see everything. You know us exactly how we are. We pray that you would rescue us from the vapor of our lives. We pray that you'd rescue us from futility, from living apart. God, we know that you have incredible, incredible plans for us. If we would just say yes to community. Work in our hearts. Father, inspire us. Inspire us so that we would really live we would live the abundant life that you have purchased for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.